You're listening to the Laura Legend Christmas Specials, adapted from the work of the Gawain poet, translator Jesse L. Weston, and Charlton Minor Lewis. This is the legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. At King Arthur's Christmas court in Camelot, there is much warmth and mirth and jollity, and already the feast has been begun with two wonderful stories. But now, at last, King Arthur has decided it is time to eat. So Sir Kay raises his fist to strike the feasting bell, but then he freezes, for another sound is rising suddenly to split the chamber's murmuring warmth, a far-off sound, a horn, a supernatural blast that charges the air and shrivels the heart in its chest. And with a sudden loud report, the doors of the court are blown open, and in bursts the most fearsome sight that any in the court will ever recall in their lives. A great giant of a man mounted on a horse, a great axe held aloft in his hand, and bell chains ringing down at the side of his steed. The man is greatly handsome and beautiful, broad of shoulders and thin of waist, strength ripples through his thick arms and torso. His hair flows down around his shoulders and from his chin in thick, luxurious locks, and the glances that he gives are bright like lightning, such that no one can seem to bear to meet his gaze. But impressive as these things are, they're not the most remarkable thing about the stranger. For that is this. From his head to his foot, from the hue of his skin to the tips of every hair, from the jewels of his gorget to the soles of his boots, this knight is of a single colour, and his every aspect is of bright emerald green. His horse, too, with its great braided mane, its glistening bridle and iron-shod feet, appears as if sprang from the very grass of the greensward. The axe, too, and a scepter that he carries on the other arm, are both of green metal, and with sprigs of holly they are tightly wound. He rides around a great round circle back and forth, straddling the horse as it tosses its great head in the green bridle. But always the green knight's eyes stay fixed on the king and his knights, combing their ranks with fierce rapacity. He demands to know, Who is the commander of this noble company? No, don't tell me. I am come not for war, but for sport, he declares. For I have heard that gathered here are the world's greatest knights. So I have been lured from my halls to see if the legend is true, and if King Arthur's knights are worthy to be called great warriors. If you be as bold as all men tell, I trust that one amongst you will grant to me a game of gallantry. If there be a man in this house who dares exchange with me one blow for another, by the blade of this axe, let him step forward now. I will take the first blow, 
I swear. And in twelve months and a day, I shall deal that same man a blow in his turn. Are there any here mad enough? Any cocks amongst the chicks? Speak up, if anyone would put warrant to their worth. Well, there is a great silence, and none do speak. And so he laughs aloud, and he sweeps the hall with his burning red eyes, and then he guffaws. What? Is this the great King Arthur's house, famed abroad and in the country up and down? Where now are all your fine words, your tales of conquest and chivalry? So this is the moment, the hour and the day, that before a green knight the whole court of Arthur quailed. By these words, King Arthur is sorely provoked. Stranger, he says, we lack not for courage. We are merely lacking words for your foolishness. Come here, give me the axe, if such a strange game you truly want. No challenge goes unanswered here in Camelot's court. The knight gives the green axe then to Arthur, who hefts it and twirls it in his hand. To him it seems it is instantly fitted in weight and balance and weft. And the king turns stiffly as the green knight grins and mockingly goes down on the floor as if in a bow. Brazenly, he brushes back his hair, leaving the pale green skin of his neck bare. Then it is that Gawain jumps up from his place beside the queen. A shame it is, sire, that you should be the one forced to take part in this affair, for you have a court here of sworn and noble sirs, all undertaken to be your shield and sword. Undoubted is your honour and your worth, sire, but we have all been sorely lacking in your hire. I beg, dread king, and lord of the British Isle, grant to me the game this green knight asks, as I am your servant, Sir Gawain. Well, it's nobly spoken, and the king is bound to honour this pledge. And so Gawain steps up, and the king gives to him the axe of green. Then Gawain steadies himself, and turns, ready to venture the fateful blow. By Gog and Magog, the Green Knight smiles. It pleases me that it is you, Gawain, who will give me this blow. But first remember the rules of this game, that thou shalt swear to seek me anywhere upon this earth where you think that I may be, and receive from me a blow in turn for the one that you deal to me here today before the court of your king. Well, where should I seek thee? Sir Gawain says. Where is thy place? For I know you not, knight, neither your court nor your name. Tell me, and I swear, by my every wit and worth, I shall fulfil the word of the promise. After you have delivered the blow, then I shall tell you my name, my land and my house. But if I cannot speak, you may rest easy and linger in these halls next year for all the long Christmas. Well, Gawain takes his place. He raises the axe, and he swings. The sharp edge sweeps through the green giant's bones, shears through the skin and flays apart the flesh. 
from atop his shoulders down tumbles the green knight's head. Blood bursts from the body, a sappy green ooze that glistens as it gladdens the stone hall's ground. There's a collective outpouring of breath. The court all clap and laugh as the head of the green giant rolls around their feet, several of them kick it back and forth. But when the head rolls back to where the green knight's body is still bowed, it suddenly straightens and reaches down and hefts up the head in its hands. There's scarcely time to gasp before the green knight, with sure and measured step, vaults back into the saddle of his horse, bearing aloft in his hands his own head. He holds it towards the table high, so that the face finds Gawain and the king. Gawain, be ready to fulfill the promise you swore in the company of all these knights. I charge thee, in twelve months and a day, to the green chapel go, to receive such a blow as thou hast given me. I am called the Knights of the Green Chapel, and many do know my name. And if thou truly seeks for me, you can never fail. And turning wildly about, and reeling the reins, the green knight flies so quickly from the hall, the hooves of his horse strike up bright sparks from the floor. None know where he came from, none know where he is gained, and as soon as he is gone, the court explodes at this wonder that they have just seen. Gawain and Lord Arthur laugh, and their brother knights as well. At last, at last, Arthur says, we can go to our food, the feast can begin. And they take the green axe, with the sprig of holly that winds around the head of the shaft, and they hang it there, over the mantle of the great fireplace, so that all can toast the marvel. But when Gawain hefts it there, he pricks a finger on a sharp edge of the holly, and a single drop of blood falls from the green leaf to the floor. It was eleven months hence that Sir Gawain trudged on the road in deep winter. For after Christmas tide, the wheel of the year had flown quickly on. Winter had been overgrown by spring and ripened to full-throated summer. And then summer and its full harvests were scythed and shorn and the ground was gleaned before the soil hardened for winter. Now Gawain was on Gringolette, his most faithful horse. He looked bloody and weary and much battle sore. 
His great lance was long since shattered, his sword slung low at his side. He was crouched down in the saddle behind his shield, raised up on his shoulder against sleet-filled winds, and any elf shaft which might fly at him out of the forest. On the shield was carefully scored in glittering red and gold the five-pointed star of the pentacle. Its interlocking lines formed a mystical seal, revealed once upon a time to King Solomon the Wise. It made the image of the star above Bethlehem of a knot never-ending, and thus the course of eternal truth, which is unbending. Gawain had painted the pentacle on his shield as his guiding star, for the five knightly virtues he counted on each of its points, generosity and fellowship that are placed above all, honesty and courtesy that are never let fall, and last of all, mercy, above and beyond call. Yet now the shield was pitted and scarred, for since he had set out on All Saints' Day when the bone fires burned brightly and the paths between this and the shadow world most often crossed, he had been forced to reckon with the siege and assault of the snow and the greenwood, which seemed determined to swallow him up and spew him out. No field, ford or glade could he approach, without finding his way crossed by some savage spirit. Serpents and chimeras, giants and bugbears, wolf packs and other bloody-clawed beasts. There were black-helmed knights and brutal hill-born brigands, rawhides and redcaps and sires in the wood. Nor could that mystical shield fend off the freak frosts that froze his flesh as hard as his armour, the ice which coated the ferns and the stones where he tried to lay his head, when, too little often, he felt secure enough to sleep. Harsher than his wounds, the cold curled through his veins to his heart, but the worst of it was this. For all his travels, these perils, these pains, he found no fig of his foe. For whomever he asked, the story was always the same. It seemed none knew the green knight, nor the church where he stayed. The only whisper or rumour of aught that he saw was sometimes the still watching of a silver-eared doe. Full well knew Gawain the meaning of a hart or a hind in the forest, but the more often he broke into a chase, the more often he was stopped by enemies that seemed directed against his purpose. By the time that he saw the castle, he scarce would admit it was true, but his spirit it was nearly spent. When he saw the towers and walls thrusting out tall from the trees, he crossed himself, and he prayed, Christ's cross speed me. He rode full bore towards the forest edge, and drawing nigh to the gate, he sent up a fierce call, asking harbour and succour for a knight who was half at death's door.
Into a rich and warm grotto within the castle walls, Sir Gawain was led. He was stripped of his armour, given warm clothes, and straight away to the fire he was taken. And when the folk of the castle asked him his name, and he replied, Sir Gawain, well, there was a change in the air, <laughs> a knight of Camelot, one of King Arthur's men. What luck! said the castle's baroness, that he came at this time of year. The Christmas feast is just starting, and he must surely stay here till the winter's cruel frost and storms have abated, and it is safe to start home to whatever good company waits him. But Gawain shook his head, said their hospitality was faultless, but he couldn't remain on account of a promise. It was his duty, his word, his honour, he said, to appear at the Green Chapel before the new year was fled, and there to trade blows with the elvish Green Knight, who had haunted the hall of King Arthur, and challenged them all in God's sight. He told them the tale, and he held them in awe. But then the Baron of the castle, he threw his arms wide, your search, sir, is over. I tell no truth of a lie. For less than two long miles over, the green chapel does lie. Rest you, sir, in my castle, these next three days, till New Year. And on that morning, I swear, I'll lead you to that place from here. For this favour, Gawain thanked him. I'd be honoured, then, to tarry here a while, and he answered the questions that they asked of him then, told them of King Arthur, his court, his knights, their quests, their adventures, and the vows that they made to found his kingdom on chivalry and to end the old ways. And he told them of the custom that the Christmas court kept, that no morsel was tasted nor red wine consumed, till some great marvel was told or some brave deed performed. And these stories, the folk of the castle seemed greatly amused and determined at once to imitate such fine customs. Let's have a feast of Camelot here in this hall, the Baron cried. And then all the Baron's men and the nine ladies of the castle set themselves to running about and parodying these games, making up their own jousts, tumbles and royal kinds of japes. The Baron himself plucked his own hood from his head and stuck it on a pole as the prize to be had. Gawain sat in his chair and he laughed and he raised his glass, thankful for the warmth of the wine and the fire and the soft pillow under his back. Yet he could not shake off some misgiving at their jests. And then there was the Baroness, who with her bright doe-like eyes stole at him silvered glances the whole of the night he felt a shiver the same as those moments when he'd caught sight of the hind watching him from a porch in the trees at dawn and twilight and as he sat there beneath the hall's roof and considered the twisted crown of stag antlers that glowered over him from the baron's high seat some contrary part of him felt for all the world 
like he'd never left the forest. The next morning, Gawain awoke to find the Baron sitting by his bed. The Baron smiled widely, and he said, Let us continue our game. You should stay here in the castle, and have us tend to your wounds. I will go hunting, and bring back a bounty of food for our feasting tonight. But if I hunt the forest, you take this castle as your hunting ground and each of us shall share with the other whatever good fortune they have found. An exchange of prizes. Ah, there's a thrill in that game. Who will fare better, the lordling or knight? Who will win the fame in great God above sight? By God, said good Gawain, I am hardly fit for any hunt while my wounds still press me so sorely. But by my word, sir, Whatever game you find agreeable, I shall strive to undertake, as best as I am able. That it's settled, he cried, and he handed Gawain a glass, and they drank to it. As they did so, Gawain's eyes wandered to the far wall. Noble sir, he said, might I ask, where have my arms and equipage been laid aside? I ask only because it is my own custom to hang my shield when I do not wear it, where it will be often before my eyes. Say no more, the Baron promised. My lady shall have it brought you. And now as Gawain rested in the castle's fine feather bed, he watched the Baron and his huntsmen, armed with horse, bow and spear, fly out from the castle gate and disappear into the forest. And then, once more, did he drop his head, and slip back into a deep sleep sorely needed on his bed. Gawain was awoken by the sound of the door in his chamber clicking shut. Through his eyes he saw in blurry silhouette a svelte, silvan figure approaching the bed. He pretended at first to sleep as she watched him. But in the end, he thought he must acknowledge her. My lady, he said, good morning. His eyes strayed again to the far wall which he saw was still bare, and he begged her pardon. But where, may I ask, is my shield? But the Baroness only smiled, and she said, Good night, lay your worries aside. You are in the very bosom of safety. You have no need of sword or that shield while you are in my company. <laughs> Unless it be that you think me your enemy, then your peril would be grave indeed, for it seems that you are caught in my trap, unarmed and unarmored, your door wide open. If I so desired, I could tie you up where you lie in that bed. My lady, said Gawain, as I am your guest, you may tie me up in any which way you want. But as your prisoner, will you at least grant me get up and get dressed? I shall make more fit company for a noble lady. 
<laughs> no, then I should have let you escape. As long as I've got you here, your naked wounds will keep you honest. I'll read the truth in them, fair knight. I'm not going to lose the opportunity to question the famous Gawain, renowned by all men and women for his great gallantry and courtesy. And he said, I fear that you're speaking of some of a knight. There are many knights more worthy to be praised than me. She said, My lord and his men have ridden away. I've dismissed all the servants until midday. There is no one here to disturb us, so I will use this time to my advantage. I am your servant, Gawain. Let me take care of your wounds, whether they be of the body or of the heart. My lady, as you are my hostess, I am your servant. It can be no other way. And the two spoke for some time that day. They spoke of the customs of King Arthur's court, of the knights of the round table, of the code of chivalry, and of the sins and the virtues of men. But when at last the baroness rose to take her leave, she turned to him and she said, Gawain, I thought by all that you said that you would be the most gallant knight in the world. But is it not chivalrous to offer a lady with whom you have passed such pleasant time a kiss? My lady, he said, I am your servant. And the baroness snaked her arms around Gawain's neck, and she kissed him once, very softly, on the lips. When the baron returned with his men, they marched through the gates and into the hall with great fanfare, bearing the spoils of the hunt between them on their shoulders. Is this not a handsome hall? The baron laughed as he displayed the divided carcass of a deer. It was a glorious hunt, Gawain. This is how we caught our prey. With horse and hound we pressed until the deer was done to death. Then our arrows flew true and the dogs drove it down. We sliced it, and carved it, and tore out its spine. But tell me, good Gawain, what got you for your spoils? Come, share with me what you have won for your game this day. My lord, Gawain said, by my faith this fulfills our covenant. And stepping forward, Gawain placed his arms around the baron's neck and kissed him once, very softly, on the lips. Well, the Baron's eyes went wide, and when Gawain stepped back, his hearty laughter filled the room. <laughs> ah, God's blood, Gawain, but one sweet kiss is better than all the venison a king could eat. Where came you by so great a favour? But Gawain said, Sir, that is not meat. You must take my kiss, and I will take your meat. Seek nothing more, for those are the rules of the game on which both swore. <laughs> Only right, the Baron cried, and he hoisted the deer's haunches up high. Come, tonight we savour this creature divine. The next day, after the hunt had ridden out once more, 
The Baroness came again to Gawain's chambers. She slipped into the room and lowered herself down by the side of his bed. She stroked his brow. Awaking then from his dreams, Gawain raised himself up suddenly. Sir Knight, she said, I'm disappointed. I thought you had learned your manners yesterday. You must offer a worthy lady a kiss. My lady, he said, I would never presume, but to your command I am a servant. And once again, the Baroness kissed Gawain. And once again, Gawain and the Baroness spent many hours conversing of the herbs and the roots of the forest, the arts of healing which Gawain had learned from his mother and grandmother, and which had preserved his life in the journey through the green wood. Then the day drew long, the sun drooped in the sky, and in the fast darkening chamber the Baroness lit a candle. As the red flames glowed, Gawain turned to her, and he said, If it please, my lady, I would that you restore my shield, if your men have made good in their care of it. She returned to the bed and lowered herself down beside him, and then she placed a hand on his thigh and cast her eyes down. She looked across him. Sir Gawain, any other lady would love to swap places with me right now. To share a chamber with Gawain. To have him comfort her. <laughs> Mary, forgive you, bold lady. <laughs> but I'm not worthy of your praises. There are far greater knights than I, as you know. By Mary, she said. If I were the greatest lady in all the land. And could choose any knight for my own. There is none that I'd choose before you. Good Gawain. <clears throat> well, my lady, he said, I wish that you would choose more wisely. And he repeated that he was forever her servant in knighthood and in chivalry. Then the Baroness smiled and she stood to go. But before she left, she bent down once more and she planted a long and Lingering kiss on Gawain's lips. When the Baron of the castle returned with his men, they marched through the gates and into the halls with great fanfare, bearing the spoils of the hunt between them. Is this not good sport? The Baron laughed as he hoisted before him the body of a boar. This is how we bested our quarry. The bristling boar fought us with battle, and several dogs died bathed in their blood. But with my own hand did I thrust my spear deep into the boar's heart, with such strength that I swear I burst it apart. But tell me, good Gawain, what got you for your spoils? Come, share with us the gettings of your game this day. My lord, Gawain said, by my faith, take this day's spoils. And stepping forward, Gawain embraced the Baron around the neck and kissed him twice. The first time was short, 
sweet and tender, the second time long and lingering. And when Gawain stepped back, the room was filled once again with raucous laughter from the Baron and all his men. <laughs> Goodness, Gawain, fair would I know which lady of this castle bestows such great gifts upon you. But come, tonight we feast on flesh, heart, and tongue. And the boar's head was roasted and served on a platter, with a sweet pear thrust between its teeth. Gawain and the Baron wet the hearth with a cup for the sake of the blessing and to renew the covenant of the night before. The next day, after the men had rode out, Gawain slept once again in the deep abyss of dream-filled sleep. When the Baroness of the castle came to his side. She had dressed herself this time not for court, but for love, and for the cut of that dress, few words needed be said. She sat herself beside his bed, and bent over to wake him with a kiss. When he stirred at the touch, and cracked open his eyes, she chided him. Good night, she gestured at the sunlit window. How can you sleep when there is so much beauty and promise here, right before your eyes? She held his gaze for a moment, and then she moved aside. See, I have restored your shield to the wall, and Gawain glanced up to where the red shield hung. He thanked her. And then they conversed of many things, as they had the day before, of lords and of ladies, of kings and of queens, of gods and of goddesses, of the men and women of Troy. Their laughter flowed freely, like a brook in the forest. And as the day grew long, the sun drooped low in the sky, and the queen lit the candles in the chamber. Gawain realised that he had not looked toward the shield that hung on the wall all that afternoon. In truth, he had avoided looking at it. The baroness saw Gawain's eyes drawn by the glitter of candlelight on the gold of the shield, and she turned away then and cupped the candle, close to her breast. Gawain, I think you must be a cruel man, if you can't see that I'm hurting, that I carry a wound just as deep as yours. Your wound is almost healed, but mine is not. Tell me, is there some other that you keep it for? Some lady that you are sworn to? I swear by my honour, lady, that there is no other. <sighs> Gawain, that is the worst thing that you could have said to me. But I have my answer, at least. I'll leave you now, so we may both tend our wounds in peace. Then, laying aside the candle, the baroness held herself against Gawain's breast, and kissed him 
long and deeply. When they parted, she did not release her arms from around his neck, but said, It is my wish that you would give me something to remind me of you. My lady, said Gawain, I am afraid I have nothing. I have brought with me no fitting gifts, but am equipped for one thing only, to fulfil my quest and trade blows with the Knight of the Green Chapel. Then I would give you something to remember me by, the Baroness said, and she unwound from around her waist a girdle of green silk embroidered with gold. Gawain held up his hand to protest, but her words then gave him pause. You think this is some petty trifle, Gawain, but this is the truth. Any man who wears this girdle about his waist by no man under heaven will be hewn down, nor can he be slain by the might of any magic, as long as he wears this charm. Then the lady put her arms around him, to fasten him with the girdle, but when she had done so, she kept her arms around him. She gave him one last kiss, then she slipped out, leaving Gawain with her gift. He stared at it long, and then with a sigh, he untied it and stuffed it into his shirt by his side. They marched through the gates and into the hall with great fanfare, bearing the spoils of the hunt on their backs. Is this not a handsome hall? The Baron laughed once again, as he flourished before Gawain's eyes, the skinned body of a fox. I spared this Reynard no mercy. He sought to outwit us by hiding his trail, but our dogs had his scent and I rousted him out of the hollow of the hill, picked him up by the scruff, snapped his neck, stripped his skin. But good sir, we've come to the end of the game. So tell me, this day, what great rewards have you won to your name? My lord, Gawain said, this is all. And stepping forward, Gawain embraced the Baron and gave him kisses free. The first kiss was light and teasing, the second kiss long and searching, the third was wistful, as if in parting. And the Baron met Gawain's eyes as he stepped back again. I confess myself beaten, gallant Sir Gawain, said he. For three kisses of this worth far outweigh my mangy fox fur. By gods, I wish I knew where you came by such tender embraces. But no matter, sir. Is this truly all? Have you followed the rules of the game in full? Gawain felt the lady's silk band beneath his tunic and shirt. But firmly, he nodded and swore he had so done. And so one night more did Gawain pass in the Baron's halls, and they celebrated the new year by dining on the last of the hunting spoil.
On the morrow, the Baron led Gawain from that place on his horse, and they traversed the path by a murmuring mere, where echoes from the deep troubled the late winter air. The Baron pointed waterward. There, he said, year after year, these voices haunt the troubled water. Who knows what they want? Men tell me, and I have no doubt that it's true. They are the voices of the knights that the green giant slew. Then the Baron told tales by the score about the green painted knight and his thirst for bloody gore. Said again and again that no prayer, no charm could defend against the power of that man's arm. He could turn aside any shield or any sword, for he knew a deep magic that let him slay all. He concluded, Woe to him who into that monster's clutches strays. I beg of you, sir, won't you come back with me now? To risk your life on this business is monstrous and absurd. There, the road forks in two broad ways. One leads back to Camelot, the other to your grave. But to this, Gawain answered, I gave my word. And so the Baron looked grim and said, Well, my friend, your own mad blood be on your head. And he galloped away without another word, so that all that could be heard was the retreating sound of hoof-beating iron on the frozen ground till all was again silent, except for the sound of the hollow voices that whispered over the grey water and white sand. Gawain followed the path as it bent through the trees and the rock clefts that rose all around. He felt as if he were climbing into some giant's heart which lay curled in the lap of the great greenwood. This was the chapel. In his heart, he was sure. So the green knight must be waiting to deliver his blow. As Gawain pursued his course through the trees, a sound assailed his ears. The shrieking music of a miller's wheel, the strike of flint on stone, the music of terror, of steel cutting bone. There was no mistaking the meaning of that. It was the sound of the green knight sharpening his axe. The sound, it grew louder with each step that he took. The stone passage widened and everywhere that he looked the green mossy stones were littered with skulls. Rotting skulls and shattered splinters of bone. Swords bent and broken and green rusting shields and rent breastplates of armour that were laid all in heaps. The place when he reached it was a wild hollow with steep clefts circled round and grown over with creeping moss and green briars. The green knight stood there 
the mouth of a cave, bent over his wheel, his back to Gawain, as he worked the great axe's edge keen. Gawain took a breath then. This was truly it. He could hail, or he could fly, perhaps before he was seen. He hailed. The Green Knight, with one great movement, swung round, his large grin showing straight away great mirth and surprise. Sir Gawain, he cried, you are right on time, and here I had my doubts that you'd keep to this game of mine. I'm delighted. What great balls you have to show your face here. But you do look pale. Perhaps you're having second thoughts. Why don't you think it over while I finish up my blade? Suppose I brew you a cup of hot green tea while you wait. No? Ah, well then, good sir, light you down, and straight to the business between us as it stands. And the green knight crossed over from the cave to the bank where Gawain stood. He sprang over to it on the pole of his axe. A blow for a blow, that was the game we began, and under my axe head you may not flinch nor stir, else the swing is forfeit. Are we agreed on the terms, good Sir Gawain? Those are the terms, Gawain gave answer. Do thou your worst. Then the green knight made him ready, and grasped his axe by its grim haft. He raised it, and swung it. But Gawain flinched back. The green knight withdrew the blade. You are not Gawain then, said he. He is so valiant, he is said to have no fear. But you shrink from my blade before you even feel the hurt. Gawain growled, I shrank once, but will do so no more. For I cannot replace my head once it falls to the floor. Make haste, knight. Let's get to the point. Deal me my stroke. I'll not move again. So again... The green knight made ready, and grasped the axe by its tall shaft. Then with a mighty roar, he made a great swing. Gawain gasped, though he stood as fast as a tree. But the next second, he could still hear his own breathing. For the green knight was holding his axe dead aloft, above the soft flesh of Gawain's neck, which he had not struck. Well, there it is. I see your heart is in it now. You are worthy to be struck. So fasten back thy hood and keep your neck bent. To this Gawain retorted, You make too much talk. Strike quickly if your own blood truly runs green. <laughs> you speak true, said the knight. I'll not keep you in your agony. And the green knight braced himself a third time over. He lifted the axe, and he let it fall, and it swept clean and true through the nape of Gawain's neck. Clean and true, but barely deep, 
A glancing blow that drew blood, a trickle and a trail that ran down his shoulder and smattered on the snow. The next second, Gawain had vaulted from under the axe, spun onto the soles of his feet and snatched up his sword. His helmet and shield he drew to him and balanced and braced. Hold, sir, and by the terms of the game I have stood one blow without flinching. If you give me another, I'll give back as good many as is given. But the Green Knight himself did not drop into a crouch. Instead, he leaned on his axe, setting the shaft on the ground, and watched Gawain as he stood there, baring his teeth and his arms. Good Gawain, calm you, sir. I wish you no harm. I promised thee a blow, and thou took it. If I had desired to, I might have struck that pretty head of yours from your shoulders. My first strike was a feint. I dealt you no blow, for on the first morning, in my castle, we made a pledge, and that day you came through true. The second fate I offered, for on the second day, you gave me the two kisses that my queen had given you. Well given, well returned. But the third time, you did not keep your faith. For the girdle you hide there under your waist, it is her silken band, which you did not give. She came on to try you, as it's true is her way. And as the Green Knight was speaking, the Baroness appeared from the cliff, mounted on a horse, though, like him, her appearance it was changed. An emerald lady she showed, green from the roots of her hair to the hems of her skirts and the toes of her feet. Her horses bridled, bristled with silver bells, and slinking out of the cave behind her came six baleful hounds. She came to her husband's side, and with a smile she rested back in her saddle. Her sea-green eyes were on Gawain. The Green Knight continued. But you resisted, and in that, I think you might be the most faultless man that ever lived. A pearl among white peas, Gawain, I find you amongst knights. It's true, at the last you did falter a step, but you meant no malice, only you loved your life, and in that I cannot see any great shame. After all, that, to me, is the point of the game. Gawain stood his ground, still inwardly seething. But when the lady appeared, and the Green Knight spoke of the girdle, he blushed deep for shame. He lowered his sword, and then he cast down his shield and the gold-painted pentacle, so that it crashed at his feet. Curse men for their cowardice. I've poisoned my virtue. I pray, sir, lady, take it, what I owe you, and do with me whatever you will. 
With burning eyes, Gawain proffered the silken belt towards the lord and the lady. But the green man, he simply laughed. <laughs> oh, Gawain, I hold thee absolved of all hurt. This adventure is more than enough penance for such a small fault. Here, take up again your shield. Keep the girdle, Gawain, and remember this day that you faced the Green Knight in the Green Chapel and lived to walk away. With great gingerness, Gawain accepted back the shield and the belt. I will, he said truthfully, considering the braided silk as he took it in his hand. What are thy names? And from whence was it you came? Our names, said the green lady, are too many to count. Some here call him Bertilak, as lord of this realm, but he has been called Aron, Oberon, and Sir Jack of the Green. My names are Titania, Mab, Una, Gay Carlin, and Nick Nevin. But above all, I am known as the Queen of Elfheim. And then Bertilak continued. At the court in the castle also you saw the nine sisters of England, chief amongst whom is Morgan Le Fay. It was they who conjured us free to meet at their fort, and it was at their bidding that I first set forth to King Arthur's halls to test the hearts of the knights of the round table, their steely resolve. In deeds of destruction, their prowess was uncontested, but in restraint and self-mastery, you men are always doubted. For this is the truth, Gawain, and your kind should learn it well. Like any good green, you can cut off my head, and before the year is whole out, it will grow back in its stead. But try to cut you too deep or pluck it up by the root, and nature will turn to you the other side of its head. That face is death. Learn the lesson, and you will escape the axe. He did not, and will die headless in a graveyard like this. Then Gawain, the Green Lady, and the Green Knight parted their ways, and Sir Gawain returned to Camelot via England's wild and narrow ways. The wound on his neck whitened into a bare, vicious scar, and as a baldric about his breast he wore the green band, a sign of his shame, he said, before his fellow man. But when brave Sir Gawain came again to the court, and related the tale of the Green Knight and his game, King Arthur and Guinevere and his comrades at arms all pronounced him as blameless as that giant had done. And it was agreed amongst all that from that day forth, every knight of the table would wear a similar sash for the sake of Sir Gawain and his noble test.
So it was done, and so it is said, as all the best books of romance and knighthood attest. When you think of Gawain and his tale, remember these words, Aegis Fortissima Virtus, virtue or character is the strongest shield. At Christmas in Camelot, a wondrous tale is always told, and a marvellous deed is always performed. So a Merry Christmas to you, fair listeners, all fine friends. May the new year bring fortune, happiness, and adventure to yourselves. You've been listening to the Lore and Legend Christmas Specials. This was the tale of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Your storyteller today was Rick Scott. The theme tune was composed and performed by Robert Bentle, with additional music from Brendan and Derek Feister on Bandcamp, and additional music and sound effects from the community at freesound.org. To learn about the folklore behind this tale, visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. Thank you to Paul Jackson for your regular contributions, which are much appreciated and give financial fuel to the podcast. Listeners, you too can help us to keep improving Lore and Legend by paying as little as 50p towards the time, labour and monetary costs of producing an episode of the show. Visit our website to find out more. A Merry Christmas to all you beautiful story folk. Thank you for listening. Look out for our return next year with our second series of mythical tales in Lore and Legend. The Gates of Dream.